Love is in the air, and there are few things that I love more than a profitable restaurant. What's your plan to ensure that this Valentine's Day is your most profitable yet? Connect with the Yelp for Restaurants restaurant expert to gain access to the tools and tactics you need to have a banner Valentine's Day. Visit restaurants.yelp.com to start planning today. Now here we go. So it's figuring out how to put the team together where you can basically answer within to any 90% degree of what an actual answer would be in, in multiple markets, which is another challenge of our company is it's one thing to know everything in LA. It's another thing or Miami or New York, but how do you do it in Wisconsin or, you know, Haver, Montana? You know, we're 20 miles from Canada, things like that. So we feel confident at this point that we can do those things. I think it's just putting the right team together and knowing what you don't know, which is the key to any good entrepreneurship. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Winning in a major market requires a very different approach than opening a restaurant in a secondary or tertiary market. And that's why I was so excited to chat with Michael Tips. Michael and his company Invictus Hospitality do many different things, but the one thing they're most known for is taking successful concepts from major markets and scaling them across the country. Perfecting that process has revealed universal truths to Michael and his team about what a formula for restaurant success looks like. And in this episode, he runs us through that formula tip to tail. I grew up in Florida, did all the chain restaurants, started as a dishwasher, busser, runner, all that stuff, typical high school, college kid. And I went to New York because I wanted to be an actor. And when I went there, I was fortunate enough to be basically a bar back at the Tribeca Grand Hotel when it opened. And before 9-11, so the whole world was bleeding money at that point, you know, I learned from the greats. I was very lucky. I got to come up and all of a sudden I caught myself being addicted to like this in New York, the bar restaurant world and the hotel world was so different than Florida that it felt like the Navy SEALs versus the Cub Scouts. And I kind of fell in love with it. And then I booked a show. I booked One Life to Live. I got my dream. I became like an actor on a, on a TV show as a regular, but I didn't like it. And I'd fallen in love with the food and beverage world at that point. So I'd go back to uh, the Tribeca Grand to hang out with my friends after my studio shooting of acting stuff. And that's what I missed. So that kind of started it. And then I got to work with people who I had no business working with. But I learned so much. And then I started doing everything from other nightclubs to managing to AGMing to GMing to doing stuff. And that kind of led me to this point where I was 27, 28. And I said, okay, I'm either going to stay here and work 100 hours a week in New York and be a food and beverage director and retire at 45 or die of a heart attack in New York. And I was like, or I can go to LA. And I went to LA and I just kind of want to go there to start consulting and building stuff and working with people. So I did that. That's when I met Dave Foss and we started building Invictus with him and Home on Tech Dairy. Started traveling all over the country and bringing bigger city concepts to rural areas, which is really what our company does. So yeah, that kind of started the passion for it. In teaching and in coaching, you have to get really good at learning. So I want to talk about your educational process as you went through it. So you learned from the greats, but a lot of people are just exposed to the greats. They work for great companies. They don't pick anything up. Great distinction. Right. And so that being the case, how did you learn? How did you catalog? How did you internalize all of these things? It's probably one of the best questions I think I've ever gotten. 
to be honest with you, because there's such a difference in aptitude for learning, right? Is uh, basically being a dork is my answer. I mean, basically, I worked and I realized that where I had to learn were the areas I wasn't being paid to do a job. So whether it was a bar back to a bar manager, a bar manager to a manager, understanding inventory and coming into my off time and asking people to show me, going to HR and saying, hey, am I allowed to come in on my off time as a liability? But can I be here so I can learn? Can I understand how inventory really works on a fundamental level, ordering on a fundamental level? What are your margins you're looking for? What does the food and beverage director do versus the bar manager? And why does it matter? You know, really learning is asking all these questions. So I started just being a dork and started kind of spending time with a lot of people. And like most people, if you ask them questions about what they know, they want to talk. So I learned that at a young age, that if you be respectful and also massage some egos, you can get a lot of great information. Then knowing when to apply it and when to shut up and kind of know your place as you're learning, getting up there. So that was a big part of it. But then it came down to construction, learning about legal, understanding liabilities, learning. Like, this is where Homon Tagdiri is so invaluable for us, is he has a huge background and he's very respected real estate lawyer in, in California who didn't go to law school because he came with a silver spoon or born with a silver spoon. He definitely put himself through school working in restaurants. So then I learned a lot about real estate law, how to really assess a property, thinking about long-term, short-term, understanding construction, construction management, architecture, design, and the balance between a designer and an architect and their night and day, figuring out all those things. And that's where the really, that thing, that question popped up with a company. I think when you build one is why do you build a company other than saying you have a company? is how do I solve the problem that when somebody wants to get into the business, whether they're experienced or they're not, they can have everything under one roof because the majority of loss in a restaurant comes from everybody having competing interests. So when you have an architect who's clearly doing what the architect needs on his 18 jobs that he's bidded for, and you're one of them or she, and then you have your designer who loves the idea of the spaceship on the roof, but has no idea what it's going to cost to build. So there's all those elements and you mix that in with a timeline and permitting and you're screwed and you've spent another 800 grand you didn't know you are going to spend because no one's communicating in the right way that benefits that one person. So that's essentially what I've learned is you have to kind of learn a little bit of everything and then figure out how to balance everybody out in the same time. So you kind of become the head of operations in a way. Isn't that the, the nightmarish expectation that's set though is that it's not that you have to know a little bit about everything. It's that ultimately most of us are cash trapped. So you have to be good at everything, right? Yeah. You've got to be an expert in marketer and an expert in operations. And you've got to be a world-class project manager. When from a front of house perspective, I just enjoyed bullshitting with people. And I genuinely, authentically yeah. enjoyed taking care of people and serving people. You have to have the gene, right? You do. And then it's, how do you reconcile that this is the one thing I was born to do? And I've got to do these 8,000 other things, most of which I'm terrible at. Mm. You work with a bunch of restaurant owners and operators. How do you reconcile that for them? Great question. Well, first off, let's take a minute to grease the host here, because one thing I give you a lot of credit for is what you've accomplished in Los Angeles. And here's why. The reason why is you work in a very unique market and you've succeeded in a very, I think, in some ways more difficult than New York, not in regards to competition. Obviously, New York's Mecca, right, for hospitality. But when it comes to L.A., there's a curveball that most people don't know about, which ties into your question as an owner. Is the curveball that in L.A. that nobody understands unless you're in that market is that nobody there wants to be caught working. Because everybody, it's really important for everyone to be seen a certain way. So getting somebody to care and have that gene to take care and to really be of service is very difficult. So kudos to you for executing that on a high level. It's a weird gray area that doesn't exist anywhere but Los Angeles. 
I think that we're dealing with other owners. I think the factor is I, whether they be a GM who's an owner or an operator owner or a silent owner is to say, don't forget what business you're in. And the way I always tell them, the way I kind of check them at the door is to say, before you start a shift, before you start the investment, whatever the position you're in, remember to ask yourself, how can I be of service? Whether I'm, that will always humble and ground, ground you no matter what part of the night you're in or what part of the investment that you're in is like, how do I be of service? Because if your partners don't feel cherished, if your staff doesn't feel cherished, they won't cherish the guest. So ultimately it comes down to that. And whether they have the gene or not, you have to be able to say to them, like, you've got to realize that if you're in the business to look cool, you're in the wrong fucking business because you're not, you're a working class, you're a blue collar citizen. And since you're pretending to be white collar when you're an owner of a restaurant. Let's talk about Invictus, because I think that there's an interesting dynamic there. When you do a bunch of research on the company itself and you try and figure out what you specialize in, it's difficult because it seems like you specialize in everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was the intention and that was the design. So how do you get good at everything? You get really, really good at everything by bringing in all the right people and asking all the right questions and being really honest with yourself about what you don't know. So, you know, when it, as an example, like we know a lot about construction, but to say that I'm a construction expert, that would only be valid to somebody who's not an expert. Right. So I look at it and say, okay, cool. So our head of construction and, and owner's reps is a guy named Gary Hamilton, who is based in Texas, who's done $200 million projects and $30,000 projects on high levels. And he's not 40 years old. He's in his sixties. And there's a reason for that as a construction guy. So it's figuring out how to put the team together where you can basically answer within to any 90% degree of what an actual answer would be in, in multiple markets, which is another challenge of our company is it's one thing to know everything in LA. It's another thing or Miami or New York, but how do you do it in Wisconsin or, you know, Haver, Montana, you know, yeah. we're 20 miles from Canada, things like that. So we feel confident at this point that we can do those things. I think it's just putting the right team together and knowing what you don't know, which is the key to any good entrepreneurship. And talk to me about your teaching and coaching philosophy. Because owners working with owners is always a difficult dynamic. Sure. I mean, I think as a think tank, as a group, one of the things that we do when we work with owners is really try to figure out what their one aptitude for learning is and also what their core strengths are, what their core competencies are, and then figure out the areas where they're not experienced. And the first thing we do is, and you know this, Josh, because you've consulted a million times, is looking at it and saying, I'm assuming, based on what I've read, you know, researched on you, is you really got to get good at being honest with them to the point where you can tell another owner operator or a potential client, here's where you're full of shit, right? And here's where your ego is driving the train. And my job is to protect you as your consultant, not to tell you what you want to hear, but at the same time, it's a mentorship. And it's also recognizing that they're the ones taking the risk, not you. So you want to be empathetic in that way. I think as a teaching philosophy for me personally, I think my life's split in two very different things. Like I think 90% of my life has been food and beverage, hospitality. The other 10% has been making movies and TV as a professional hobby. And I'm definitely more on the creative side of the entrepreneurship. So for me, I try to integrate those two things. So when I teach people, I try to come from more of a creative angle of, like example, we get into concepts, right? Like that's a big thing is whatever, what's our concept? And people really, most operators can't actually define what a concept is. Like if you tell them to go in there and walk out and tell me what the concept is, tell me what the owner was, intention was, and how do you break down your concept? Most of them just go, what it, it's Italian or it's Mexican food, or it's a nightclub. And I'm like, no, one's function, one's a concept. What is it? And you start breaking that stuff down. So for me, I try to really, as a teaching mentality, I really try to break down the creative angle of it and trying to dissect in very clear terms 
what the intention of the operator is trying to do. Like, where are you trying to make an impact? Is it you just want to have a cool packed place or do you want to have a spot that is groundbreaking across the board? Because you don't have to do it in New York or LA. You can just do something out of the box. And people are really afraid to do something out of the box or out of the ordinary. And isn't that such an important part of the job is to challenge convention? I can't tell you how many restaurant owners and operators I know have moved to secondary or tertiary markets and just murdered it, absolutely murdered it because they took a big city mentality and a strong work ethic and a vision. And they were able to put it in smaller markets and cannibalize the entire market. You don't see a lot of people talking about that. And you guys do a lot of that work. Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge comes with, we do do a lot of it. And I mean, and so much where I wanted to come to Florida for a year to oversee this property. And I think the challenge with it is a couple things. You can cannibalize things and you can crush it. I think the other side of the coin is when you go to different towns, you're also dealing with the self-worth of that town, not to go too deep about it. But I do think that you got to be cool, but you can't be too cool for school. You can't alienate your locals. So like as an example, in Daytona Beach, like like most suburbs, chain restaurants run Supreme, right? And the nightclubs are pretty much built for kids and the independently owned places are in shopping malls. That's the suburbs we all grew up in for the most part. So how do you put something that's, you're not putting the Bellagio in the middle of that? Like it's just not going to happen. So how do you integrate something that makes people feel curious and then you can also dominate the market? And usually it comes, I think it comes down to design like how you're building the spaces out and how people feel in the space and then your price points. I think that's a big challenge for us. We've done big city concepts in, you know, in Haver, parts of Millville, Alabama, different parts of Baltimore, Florida, all over Texas, not really California as much, but in like Wyoming, Montana, just different spots. And that thing is people walk in there like you built a spaceship. So it really comes down to the hospitality and service and how you can you train locals and your talent pool. Like, I always challenge my staff and I say, guess what? There's a reason why. I mean, Foss has worked with Ramsey a ton of times, like my partner. He loves him and he's like the most authentic dude in the world, leaves people behind up the show to help the client. He's a beast. But he'll say like, hey, there's a reason why major restaurateurs aren't coming to Daytona Beach. And we challenge our staff like that, like because they don't think that the talent pool is good enough to run it. Wow. You know, we're just honest with them. And then they take it personal and we get the best out of them. You know, we spend a lot of time building culture and training them. So... I think it can be done, but I think it's going to be on the forefront of a lot of hospitality groups that it won't be the thing anymore to go to New York or San Francisco and open eight restaurants. It'll be to go to the suburbs of Texas and do it. And how do you There's really a make lot of money in Texas? A lot of money. And how do you make a cultural impact with your employees as you get these kids who have never had a chance to work with skilled people who really invest in them and take the time? And I think you can make a real impact in communities that way. I've consumed a ton of your content. And one of the things you lean into is the customer experience. High level, what does that typically look like? And what should it look like? You've done this before, haven't you, Josh? <laughs> I have. <laughs> Wonderful questions. I think it comes down to one thing. Guest experience comes down to your ability as an operator, a manager, a server, a busser, a host, to put yourself in the experience of the guest. And I feel like that's the one element that separates the highest level restaurants in the world to your local chilies. And I feel like that's the one thing that will determine people's, what they look at and what they value. So it's that thing where you go to, like example, you go to a Jean George spot that's opening that really at this point just has his name on it. Right. And you go in and some people go, Oh my God, the food was amazing. It was great. It was all these things. And other people walk out and go, it was overpriced. It was shit. I genuinely believe it's because of how they, everyone knows it's how do you feel? 
the hospitality is that thing. Like we all know the Danny Myers thing of there's a technical element and then there's how you feel about it, which is really the hospitality. So like, that's the part that gets kind of missed. And I feel like if you're able to do that, I lean towards that because I always call it a Jedi mind trick. It's that thing where people can walk in and have an average meal and average cocktails and average music and an average experience. But if you make them feel relevant, which is what we need as part of the human condition, that's why we go out, right? Then everything else is forgiven for the most part. Unless it's literally a chef-driven restaurant that's overpriced, of course. But the reality is, is that when you're doing these things, I always tell people, I'm like, you have to follow the Walt Disney model. Like, you have to be able to know that you control everything. The minute they look up your restaurant or your bar or your nightclub on their phone, that's when your responsibility begins. I agree with you. But I will say, and I know you're an advocate for this as well, your team has to push. Because everybody is going to skew towards what is safe, right? I'll get the chicken. I'll get a Jack and Coke. I'll get all of these things that I'm used to because I know. And ultimately, even though those things exist on the menu, that's not going to create an unbelievable experience for Mm -hmm. the guests. And that's not a winning hospitality model. I think that the effort is to pair that high level of hospitality that you're talking about with a unique experience. And you've got to push for it. When I owned the bar in Hollywood, it was this New Orleans inspired thing. We had all of these cool twists on classic New Orleans cocktails and people would sit down and they'd say, I'll have a Jack and Coke. (laughs) And while I can totally appreciate that that's what they want and we're capable of supplying that, you know, I trained the team to say, listen, you got in your car, you paid for parking, you drove all the way here, you came, you sat down at this bar, you could have a Jack and Coke anywhere in the city. Here's the cocktail list. Pick anything you want that looks good to you. And based on wanting a Jack and Coke, you might actually like this particular cocktail. If you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it. But I would hate for you to come here and have the same experience that you have everywhere else. And that's awesome. Yeah, it is. But it requires courage, right? It requires empowering your team to do the hard thing for the benefit of the customer. No, for sure. And I think what's interesting about it is too, is that there's a difference between serving people and managing them. So I'm always telling them like, you're managing the guest experience or you're just an order taker. So if I'm managing your experience, I need to tell you like, in our company, we don't believe in upselling. We believe in being educated and being excited about what you're selling because then that does the work for you. Like as an example, like to add to what you're saying, being authentic, authenticity. So we tell people, we're like, listen, when people walk in, as an example, our venue in Florida is called Mama Fufu. You walk in and go, hi, welcome to Mama Fufu. I'm Michael. On a subconscious level, even if you're doing your job, you're already being disingenuous. And even though they're not calling you out subconsciously, they know you're reading a script. So the minute you go, hey, guys, how you doing tonight? Welcome. And you walk away, that's more effective. Because they go, even the tone at which you say things, when you spike your voice to a certain octave, and they know that's not how a human being normally speaks, you're not being authentic. I'm like, you've got to be warm to people and connect with them and be real. And then they're just going to trust everything you say. But then you have to be authentic in the recommendations. So when you're talking about the cocktail program, I 100% echo that because then you're looking at it saying, cool, the Jack and Coke is awesome. Let me take you down a different path in case you change your mind. Let me tell you what I order when I'm here and why I love it. And I love Jack and Cokes too. But here's why I love this. Then you have to build that trust. So I feel like for me, it always starts off with how are we greeting them? Because they have to get through your line of questioning, I always call it, just to get to the truth. So. Are we really properly selling the cocktails? Are really describing to them how much love and care we talk about when our bar prep comes in at 6 a.m. and they're squeezing fresh juice? Does the guests really know that? And if they don't, they should know it. 
That way they know there's a lot of love in that $14 they're getting charged, not just another drink. They're not supposed to be experts in hospitality. We're supposed to guide them to that. One of the greatest determinants of success in our industry is our restaurant's buildup. So many of us spend months or years running overtime and over budget on design and construction costs, but it doesn't have to be that way. My friends at SoCal Restaurant Design are experts in the field, and they put together a checklist of things you need to know when building a restaurant. To get access to this free resource, visit SoCalRestaurantDesign.com forward slash full comp. Again, that's SoCalRestaurantDesign.com forward slash full comp. Let's talk about that. So I'm sure everybody listening completely agrees with everything we just said, but they'll come back and they'll say, my people don't sell. They feel like selling is dirty. They don't like it. They're shy. They don't like talking to the customer. So how do you build a culture from your line level employees on up that ensures every customer gets that experience? Wow. Another good question, man. You think I was getting you on my podcast and I was just showering you with <laughs> Yeah, so that's great because I actually had to do that with Mama Fufu because I have a lot of kids here in Daytona. I say kids as in like, you know, under 30 who are basically have worked at Crab Shack and Chili's. Chili's is great, although we all know Brinkers knows how to run their business. I'm just saying in the sense of that garden variety chain, I have a lot of respect for Chili's. I think that the way that I've done it, and luckily it's been effective, most importantly, is this might sound kind of backwards, but I really work on spending time and teaching them about the relationship of money and their understanding of what it is to them. Right. And I usually personalize it. And I usually will get them in front of a group of people and we will discuss what their understanding of money is and the value of things and value versus cost. I start there because what you're dealing with when you're dealing with how they sell or how they appreciate things, they need to understand how the relationship between people work. And that's really about economy and money and all these things. But everyone's raised differently. So I try to get as personal as I can about it. And I talk about what your grandmother's money is worth to you and how they don't look at it like it's only $4, but it's your grandmother spending it. So is it really about the amount of money or the person? Right. So we start kind of blurring their lines of how they value things. And I say, listen, here's how I like to look at it. And they typically buy into it. Is I say, people work really hard for their money. They work really, really hard and they're not in this business. They work as a plumber. They work as a cop. The majority of blue collar people who come into a restaurant, right? Who aren't celebrities in LA. We're getting it all for free anyway. So I say they work really hard and I give them a specific amount of money. And I say, this person makes $900 a week and they come here and they allocate X amount of dollars to take their significant out, other out here. And we make a real example of a real person. And when we do that, I explained to them, I said, they're going to give two hours of their time and 20% of their paycheck to us. We owe it to them to give them our absolute best. And then I try to explain on the other side of it to stop looking at their clients as a one-off because as servers and bartenders, we look at everything as that night because we don't look at it like a salary. So I try to explain to them that that same person who comes in every week who only leaves them $10 and their low maintenance actually leaves them enough to pay their cell phone bill for the year and for them to look at it entrepreneurially. So I have them kind of change their idea about money and about the value that we give other people versus what we're taking and what value they bring us. And that helps them see people differently. That was the first step. The second step into understanding the value of the guests is this one is breaking down that the business model of bars and restaurants is the worst business model in modern history. And I explained to them that if it didn't exist and they came to me, if I was an investor and there was not just thing as bars and restaurants, and they said, hey, listen, 
I had this idea. I had this rectangle commercial space. I want to turn it into the space that people come buy product from. And I go, okay, well, what does it have? And they say, well, it has alcohol in it. And we have to buy this permit to sell it, but we're going to do that. And they said, okay, that sounds great. What are we going to charge? And they said, oh, we're going to charge 10 times what you buy at the grocery store. And I said, well, that sounds like a crappy model. Why would they do that? Oh, because we're going to have food and we charge five times more than the grocery store. And what about the music, Spotify, et cetera? And it goes on and on. It's, that's a terrible idea. The point is the business model kind of sucks. And I always say, so why do you think people go out if this doesn't make any economic sense? Oh, because it doesn't matter. I said, they go out because it's part of the human condition. We all need each other. Welcome. Sure. I go, that's the point of this entire business. If you think it's about food and beverage, you're out of your mind. I go, it's an excuse to build relationships. That's all it is. And it doesn't make any sense that I'm going to go spend $10 on two PVRs at the dark room on Milrose, right? To sit there just to watch old Japanese movies by myself. I go, it doesn't. It's because I want to be alone around other people. That's it. That's the catch. So if you can understand that going into it, you can start building culture and they start, I need them to start looking at the guests differently. And that's how, in my opinion, you build culture because they, they don't care. How do you get them to care? It's getting them to care. So that's how they care about the guests. How do you get them to care about you as the owner, as the operator, as the guy at the helm? Sure. I talk to so many owners and operators and they say, you know, they think that I'm rich and they think that I'm greedy. And when I ask them to sell or to do this or to do that, they think it's all in an effort to just collect more money from them. And <laughs> sure. so, right. And so that being the case, how do you create buy-in, not just around the guest experience, but around the opportunities that there are working with you and your company? That owner that you talk about is very real. And I think that owner that I've dealt with also at times takes the martyr position of either one, I'm Rockefeller or two, I'm not Rockefeller and help me out. I think what ends up happening is, is the fine art of detachment. We educate our staff on the margins of a restaurant without saying, we're going to be broke. Like, we don't do that. We just simply say, here's what the margins are. Here's why you're going to make 15% if you're lucky, right? And if you really know what you're doing, you can make 20 or 25 or 10, whatever the function is, nightclub, bar, restaurant, et cetera. And we say, okay, cool. But here's the realities of that because they don't know. They've been in the business. They've been a server. All they know is what their tip out is. They have no understanding. So once they understand that, they look at the business differently. They feel like you're kind of confiding in them without being a martyr and say, here's the business we're in. Here are the margins. So that's one, educate them. I think there's this thing with owners, like they don't want the staff to know too much. Sure. Like somehow that's going to affect their performance. So they're going to grab you and they're going to have an advantage over you. When in fact, I think it helps them to realize that the margins are so thin that what they do actually does matter. Like the fact that we have to order these dry goods so many more times a year because they're careless with the go boxes actually affects our bottom line. Right. You know, oh, it's only a thousand. I'm like, yeah, it's actually 12,000 for the year though. You see, that's like a bonus for an employee. So why would we want to waste that money? And they go, I didn't think about it like that because they're not going to. <laughs> so, you know, so I think that's part of it. I think that's the bigger thing is bringing them in and getting them to care about you is showing that you care about them first. I think it's really important for ownership to say, here's where we care. And I think you can't ask for something you're not willing to give consistently and as a priority. And how do you give that? You give it through education, not just an owner signing off to reps and saying, come in and take them through a course. Bringing in the core people of your company saying, I'm showing you why I care about this. I'm also acknowledging why it could be boring if it's not taught the right way. Wine is a great example of that. And coming in and saying, here's why we care so much. And this is why it's a career, not a gig. And really creating a safe place for them to want to come in and learn and excel and showing them where they can advance. High level. I think that you have this model for customer experience. And then I think high level, you have this model for employee experience. Let's talk about the owner experience. I would assume 
and I've seen this in my own career, that a lot of people come to me with the same problems and a lot of those problems have the same solutions. If that's been your experience, what are the common problems that owners and operators come to you with and what are those common solutions? Number one is always promotions and balancing promotions with the budgets. How do you get more butts in the seats? My common solution is looking at what they have now and are they maximizing what they already currently have because increasing your gross sales doesn't mean you're going to make more money. Right. It's figuring Say that, that again out. for the people in the back. Yeah. Increasing your gross sales does not mean you're going to make more money. And I think that that's the misconception with the business is that you walk by a restaurant or a bar and it's packed and you're like, they're classic, right? They're printing money. I'm like, no, no, they're not. They owe a lot of money and they're paying off debt. And maybe they're netting 10%. You know, I always think about that when you see larger restaurants in downtown LA, like we own a small bar in downtown called Shoo Shoo Baby. It's basically a cute dive bar and it's consistent, made it through the pandemic, makes great money. We have our labor's like 9%. <laughs> we don't have a kitchen. Yep. You know, it's a joke and it's great, but you go, oh, it grosses under 2 million a year. But I always tell people, I'm like, it grosses under $2 million a year, but guess what? I don't have to do anything. And my labor is a joke. I'll take that over yep. my restaurant that grosses six million a year and nets ten percent. <laughs> sure, and is a constant headache. So it's always figuring out that the, the gross sales versus the net sales. To answer your question fully, the number one thing I get is that, and how do I draw my salary, or how do I make money off of my current net, and then satisfy my investors because that's the wild card, right? Everybody owns a bar, but they have twenty six partners, and what's the payback structure is a big one. How do I keep everybody happy? Do I give people money back? I mean, that's always the joke in LA too, is everybody in LA owns a bar because they threw five grand in. So I think those are a big one. Like what's the best payback structure for the operator versus the silent partners? I guess, and I always say, what's the solution is, well, what's the goal? Was there a financial goal for the venue before you started this? And was it everybody saying, yeah, we're going to own a bar together, man. It's awesome. Did everybody really understand that were their expectations managed correctly and what people really make? I found, I don't know how this is for you, Josh, but I'm always shocked that a lot of operators, and I don't mean like high-level operators, I mean the average operator, if you ask them, what should a bar gross? What should a bar net based on square footage? But ultimately, if it's a bar, restaurant, or nightclub, what range should they be netting in? It's never one thing. It's square footage and what you're doing. Sure. And what the are. Most of them don't know. Most of them I found don't know what like a bar versus a restaurant versus a nightclub and what you potentially can make. And to me, I'm always like, how can you not even know that when you've, this is the only business, I'm sorry, I'm going to the soapbox here. This is the only business that we work in that people will put up their house for collateral for a fucking loan and not know what they're supposed to make. That's crazy to me. It's optimism. It's just <laughs> optimism. Every restaurant or bar I have ever opened, I opened in the location of a closed bar or restaurant, mm -hmm. right? I remember when I opened that bar in Hollywood, man, there was a pizza place next to me and it was the day we opened and I'm standing out front and I'm looking at the sun and I got my arms folded and I've got this big smile on my face because I'm so excited because it took nine months to get the permitting and everything done and we're finally open. I turned to my neighbor, the owner of the pizza place. And I said, man, I'm so excited to be here. And he goes, well, I hope you're here a while because there were three people in here before you over the last two years. <laughs> of course. And I was like, man. But it certainly adds perspective. But I had a great business plan on what it was going to look like operationally. But in terms of long-term goals and all of that, it was just going to be great, Michael. I was certain of it, you know. But you're not fair, though. It's not fair to judge you on that same curve. No. Here's what I'll tell you. What I learned after that was I used the same exact strategy to open Pru and Proper. 
mm-hmm. you know, 6,000 square foot fine dining restaurant. And I got kicked in the shins for it. It was a disaster. It was a disaster the day it opened for the next 18 months. We bled money. And it was just a nonstop series of apologizing to my partners and the patrons and the employees is I, I desperately work to figure out how you run a restaurant, how you run it effectively and how you optimize and how you make it profitable. The first restaurant I ever worked in in my life was the one I built. I had spent my entire life in nightlife. Hey, look, you flash forward six years later and we're Michelin rated and it's great. But I think for so many of us, they don't have that initial success, which was both a blessing and a curse. Having the time and the money to figure it out because the sales, sales will cure almost all evils or at the very least obscure them. But then it was with that sophomore effort that I became timid and scared and thoughtful and hesitant. And those all seem like really bad qualities. But prior to opening a location, prior to signing a lease with a personal guarantee, I see all of those as superpowers. You definitely are the American dream in that way. And I, I mean, at the end of the day, though, but if somebody asks you what your secret formula is, I'm going to bet you you're going to, I'm going to bet and say you're going to go hard fucking work is my secret formula. You know, not hard in the sense of not well thought out, but like in the sense of just like not not ear to the grindstone, but you didn't clock out, you know? No, certainly um, not. I think that's a big thing, too, with owners as they get into it. They don't realize how much they're going to have to put into it. And how For much. Sure. In fact, before this, I was actually digging into my GM of this property. And a lot of the questions that he's new, he's an interim GM, he's learning, he's doing great. He's definitely going to be a rock star. But it's one of those things where you're like, dude, it's Tuesday before New Year's Eve. Now is not the time to be asking about certain promotions and about how we're putting stuff online. And is it online yet? And what are the guests going to get? I'm like, so, and then, of course, the GM represents a lot of operators who are owner operators. Absolutely. Focus. Focus is critical. Yeah. 100%. Talk to me about the future. One of the things that you do, because you work with so many different concepts, is you have the ability to see what's working in major markets, what's working in minor markets. What trends do you see coming down the road? What are you betting on? Oh, boy. Give the old strategy away online. This is good. If you can do it. Yeah, that's the whole goal. That's what we're here to do. we're We're all about the gold nuggets. I think because of the pandemic, people are starting to realize that you can make a lot more money other places, like you were saying earlier. And what is the allure anymore of the big cities, right? Like we own, we're partners in a spot that Dave Foss is the main operator called Lalo in Brooklyn and Prospect Heights. And it's great. You know, we've gotten, you know, top 20 wine bars in the country. It's been awesome, accolades, et cetera. It's done much better as a restaurant and a wine bar. But I think what we're seeing is, is like, what is the payoff as an operator from opening in the big city other than bragging rights? Like, does it really benefit your life? So tomorrow, if I open let's say a second mom of Fufu, but I open it in like a larger, smaller market like Tampa. I'm grossing 10 million a year and I'm netting, let's call it 1.8, right? And I'm doing that and I'm not having to lose my mind in the process, then I'm winning in the restaurant world. Or I can go to New York and have like just murder myself or San Francisco, have all my costs be so inflated between labor and everything else that I'm going, man, I'm killing myself. And it's great because I got reviewed by this one guy at the New York Times. And I'm great with all my geek friends because I'm a geek. I'm a cork dork. I'm food, all that stuff. But the reality is, is like, it doesn't really win anything over and I'm not buying a new house because of it. So that's the thing. I was like, was the juice worth the squeeze of the major markets? And I see that the future being the middle American markets because that's where the money is. 
And the future of this, I also think this ties into, I want to bring this up and maybe you have to edit this out. Maybe you don't, but God willing is a lot of the way that I think the future has been affected. And this is kind of a crazy theory. A lot of it has to do with reality television. I think that reality TV has changed the way that guests and operators perceive their potential venture. Everyone's become a consultant because they can walk in and go, oh, this is dirty, clean it up or shut it down or this and that. And it's interesting because I think that a lot of people have a very skewed idea of the business because of reality TV. And I think that a lot of people are deciding to open places and a lot of them are having wild success because they're just doing it. There's no other options. And then some of them are just figuring out as they go. Right. So I feel like the oyster is the small markets. I know that because a guy like you goes to a small town in Minnesota and you cannibalize the whole thing in five minutes like you do. And then you're like, cool, I can now I'm making an extra few million dollars a year as an operator where before I was making 200 grand a year in New York, but I was the big deal. So I think that is the future. And I think on a cocktail food and beverage level, you see great Michelin places that are doing chicken sandwiches and oysters, and they're going back to the fundamentals of, and this is something that me and Foss used to talk about a lot in the the height of the cocktail craze in LA, where it was like 10 years after New York, was like when Seven Grand opened and all those spots opened up, it became, okay, cool, but bars aren't fun anymore. Like there are spots you go and you talk about cocktails and you watch people's hands, but they don't feel fun. Like when me and you were going to bars and you go to, you know, places in the early 2000s, you go to fucking Miyagi's or you go to like Dublin's and it's all, they're all crap, like like crappy style bars, right? But we had more fun. And the fun in bars kind of came out. And I think the fun is the future. I think with the pandemic and everything going, they're tired of coming and reading a Bible of cocktails. I think they want to go in and just have a blast. And you can see it in New York right now. They're doing like Midori Sours again with better ingredients. They're doing Grasshoppers, Fuzzy Navels, Long Islands, Harvey Wallbangers. They're doing all these 80s drinks. They're doing with better ingredients and better ice, but they're making them fun again and approachable. And I think the same thing's happening with food. And I think we're, we kind of all got kind of high and mighty there for a while in the craft movement of everything, right? But I think the future is fun and I think we should be on that bandwagon. That's Michael Tips. For more information on Invictus Hospitality, visit InvictusHospitality.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.